Eight years ago, I arrived at Magdalen Road for the first time. A cocky, spotty teenager, I was sat somewhere at the back. And I remember we were shown a video. It was an extract from a sermon. A sermon by the American pastor Dr. S. M. Lockeridge. He was preaching in 1976 under the title That's My King. In his West Coast lilt, these words hit me like a cannonball. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. He sympathizes and he saves. I wonder, do you know him? He was asking if we know Jesus Christ, the guy who died in my place and in your place. He's asking if we realize that we need him. So, sat here today on Sunday the 6th of July, 2014, at 11:30 exactly in the morning. My question is, do you know the son of God? And are you in awe of him? That's my prayer today. Last Sunday we read of the baptism of Jesus Christ. We saw the picture of Jesus entering the water and then coming back up again, giving us a picture of the future death and resurrection of Jesus. We're told from the Old Testament that sin sacrifices had to be spotless to be acceptable by God. And Satan knew He knew that if he could just get Jesus to sin that would ruin the whole plan of restoring relationship between God and man. So at the very beginning of his ministry Jesus is required to face the strongest temptation the devil could possibly bring against him. In verse 1 you see the holy spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And in the language of Mark 1 verse 12 this is even stronger it says that immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now if you can cast your mind forward a bit many centuries later in this text in the western united states the union pacific railroad was being built. An elaborate trestle bridge construction near the ones with the kind of steel triangles in it. Wanting to test the bridge the engineer responsible for building this loaded a train with enough extra kit and equipment to double the bridge's normal payload the train was then driven into the middle of the bridge where it stayed an entire day one worker asked are you trying to break this bridge no the engineer replied i'm trying to prove it won't break in the same way as with the bridge from God's grandstand perspective of time and space the temptations Jesus faced weren't designed to see if Jesus would sin but to prove that he wouldn't we're supposed to see the similarity as well between Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness and Israel's 40 years in that same wilderness Israel is God's chosen people that time before could have been obedient children they could have been an, a blessing to the world but they failed israel were god's chosen people which now if you follow the teachings of jesus 
You're part of two. When Israel were tested, they often failed to be obedient and spotless. When I am tested, I often fail to be obedient and spotless. And when you are tested, I imagine you often fail to be spotless and obedient. So sitting here today, however dirty, sullied, convicted you feel by your sin, if we get the enormity of what it is for Jesus to be the spotless and obedient Son of God, we can smile a broad smile today. Because the one whom God had promised Adam way back in Genesis, Jesus, was going to be the one who would meet Satan's temptations face to face. The one who is going to leave Satan speechless and later go on to crush his head. And in the process of doing all of that stuff, Jesus is going to set you free. If you trust in Jesus, from the judgment that should, by rights, follow yours and follow my self-destructive turning away from God. And the way he does it is epic. I'm told by friends who have dabbled in the martial arts that the old masters, the ones with the double, triple, uber, black belt with tassels on, are capable of foreseeing the attack of an opponent. With speed, style and grace, they can pacify them. Well, that's what Jesus does here. We will see that he does also demonstrate some useful moves and combinations to fight the temptations. But ultimately... I think that here Jesus proves he's a spotless son of God in beating the devil's temptations. So, how does he do this? Well, first of all, by trusting the provision of the Father. Now, the devil's main purpose was to overthrow the Messiah at the outset. He knew that Jesus had come to bring salvation. Remember, he knew that if he could get Jesus to sin, that would ruin the whole plan of God saving his people, of God saving us. Satan waited until the conditions were just right, were primed, before he began his onslaught of temptation. In verse 1, he says that Jesus was led up into the wilderness. The Judean wilderness stretches between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. It's an area of yellow sand, crumbling limestone and contorted strata. It glows and shimmers with the heat like a vast furnace. The conditions of that wilderness would have made that discomfort from the hunger even greater. He thinks it's a bit of an understatement that Matthew says that Jesus was hungry. I think he was probably starving, It's said that during a prolonged fast, the feeling of hunger goes away after two or three days, only to return with renewed force. As Jesus was a man, we can be sure of that, he would have tasted that hunger deep in his mouth, in his stomach and in his guts. The onslaught of recurring hunger became the opportunity for the first temptation. Now, temptation is tailored to the individual. Satan's basis for temptation here was unique to Jesus. 
Because Jesus was a unique person. Notice in verse 3, if you will, um, that Satan said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Only recently, at the baptism of Jesus, had, uh, had God the Father confirmed that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. So Satan used that. He used that as a springboard for his temptation. Can you imagine Satan saying, Dear Son of God, you're hungry. How ridiculous. And if you are a son of God, then God is supposed to be your father. He must not care about you. Take matters into your own hands. And all that time, the crippling hunger deep in Jesus' guts, Satan was tempting Jesus to act independently of the Holy Spirit who had led him into the wilderness to fast. He was seeking to to destroy the son's confidence in the father's will and power to sustain him. Satan is always trying to get people to doubt the love and care of God. He did it to Adam and Eve in the garden. He's certainly done it to me. Has he ever done that to you? Is Satan trying to make you doubt God's love and care for you today? Perhaps to quote the Robbie Williams song, you feel deprived of something. Perhaps it only comes and bugs you when you're shattered, when you're at your weakest. Or perhaps it haunts your thoughts whenever you're not occupied by something else. Satan's tactic since the very start, since the Garden of Eden, is to tell us that God is a killjoy. God is trying to restrict you. He's no fun. He doesn't really know what you need. It's ironic, really, isn't it? (laughs) As he made us, as he made fun, as he made that funny thing called love, ironic that he doesn't know what you need. Let me say again, Satan was seeking to destroy the son's confidence in his father's will and power to sustain him. So Satan tempted him to use his power to produce instant food. In the case of Jesus, he could turn desert stones into bread. Later, he would demonstrate that he could change water into wine and multiply a few loaves and fishes to feed thousands. Oh, he had the power to rustle something, something that would surpass the greatest efforts of Mary Berry, Paul Hollywood, or Delia Smith. And why not use that power? The desire for food was innocent, but strong, The need was pressing, and he had the power to get that instant relief. So the bait is skillfully wound around the barbed hook. How would Jesus respond? Now, Jesus appealed to God's word. This was a fight. And as we learn in Ephesians, to survive a fight, we need to get tooled up with the armor of God. And Jesus pulls out a double-edged sword, which is the word of God. Jesus quotes Moses here, who reminded Israel from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, of their time in the wilderness. He goes on to say, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you, 
that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But what happened to Israel? I'll tell you what happened. In Numbers 11, they failed to trust. Israel failed to trust. But as a son, we see here Jesus obeying the Father by being in the wilderness. As a father, God will provide the food he needed. Jesus trusted that God would provide for him. So he will wait for the Father's provision. Jesus has won round one. Now, Satan tries his next temptation in verses 5 to 7. If you turn and have a look, it says here, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are a son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike a foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I think that Jesus is here showing us that he is the son of God by trusting the will of the Father. So Satan took Jesus to the temple, a magnificent structure. And from that high point, Satan started to tempt Jesus. Some 100 foot above the worshippers below. I'd like to say that that's comparable to University Church Tower on the high street. This may have been a follow-up to the response of Jesus to the first temptation. Satan was saying something like, So you trust the Father, do you? Okay, well, let's see how much you trust that Father. If if you will not work a miracle for yourself, then let's see if the Father will work one for you. And since you seem to know scripture, let me give you one. And he went on to quote from, uh, as we saw just then, Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12, which Satan alleges will give Jesus the promise of safety. But also... Running parallel to that, we see that to jump and to land gracefully at the hands of angels, well, I tell you, that's a bit more of a classy entry to public messianic life than hanging out with sick people, prostitutes, pompous teachers of the law. That would be an entry worthy of a king. The temple worshippers would love it. Surely the Cloud Nine Divine PR team would love it too. However, this is not what God the Father wanted. We are often tempted to demand a visible proof of God's presence, of God's care. For example, someone may say, if God heals me, gives me that job, makes that girl like me, then I will really trust him. How easy it is to try to domesticate God. God, surely, this is what you want for my life. I'm sure of it. That is not faith. But that is putting God to the test. Satan was also hoping that he could drive a wedge between the actions of Jesus and the will of the Father and what the Father really wanted. The job that Jesus was going to fill as the obedient, spotless Son of God 
was a job which Adam couldn't do, which Israel couldn't do, which we can't do. To be the obedient son, Jesus had to do what God wanted, which was what God had laid out in Isaiah 53. It reads, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. The divine PR team, which here is the prophet Isaiah, some 700 years earlier, speaks of someone who works, whose works would not be marked by flashy showmanship, but by trusting the will of God. And that is why Jesus said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Because it was right to trust the will of God. Remember, Adam, Israel, you, me, we fail to trust. And we put God to the test. So to us as people who have failed to trust, the next temptation and Jesus' response should be like the first shafts of light as a dungeon door of condemnation is prized open. In verse 8 of chapter 4 here, we see that Satan begins by showing Christ all the kingdoms of the world. Now, there was no Walt Disney or iPad on which to do this. For Satan to show Christ all the kingdoms of the world, well, that required a miracle. And it says here, even from a high mountain, on top of this, Luke adds that he did this in a moment. He showed this vision instantly. Satan was saying, and it can all be yours. Satan boasted that he has control over the kingdoms of the world. This was partly true since Adam. But it was a massive lie too. Because Satan was always going to get his skull crushed. What on earth would have made worshipping Satan ever even worth Jesus thinking about? Surely that's no temptation. Well, it would have actually partially done the job which God God the Father had sent him to do. By temporarily wrestling the control of earth from the tight, sinewy, sweaty grasp of the devil. Managing this would also save Jesus from the last part of that prophecy that we read in Isaiah just now, which says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. But Jesus rejects this temporary gratification on offer. Instead, he trusts the way of the Father. Now, what was that way of the Father? 
while Isaiah immediately goes on even more to tell us. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was called to suffer. Suffering led to glory. The cross led to a crown. This had to happen because Adam hadn't worshipped the Lord your God and served him only. This had to happen because Israel hadn't worshipped the Lord your God and served him only. This had to happen because you and I hadn't worshipped the Lord our God and served him only. In Tolkien's Return of the King, the final book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, at the end of the battle for Middle-earth, all the forces of men are amassed at the black gates of Mordor. They are completely surrounded by the seething forces of evil amongst the hopelessly outnumbered group of men. are a couple of hobbits, pitifully ill-equipped for the battle, and yet with their little swords held high for the fight, the only reason why the little hobbit's display of defiance against evil isn't swallowed up in comprehensive and shameful defeat is because a much greater battle of sacrifice is won elsewhere that defeats all evil. We are like those little hobbits outside the gates of Mordor. We are not responsible for victory. But they were required falteringly, to hold their swords high and defy the taunts of the evil forces. In Ephesians 6, we see that this is our position too. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. The Apostle Paul calls us to stand firm in the face of temptation empowered to do this in the knowledge that Jesus was that true son of God that mankind failed to be. Jesus did this by trusting the provision of the Father, by trusting the will of the Father, and by trusting the way of the Father. Jesus' best mate on earth later wrote of him, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, that's my king. I wonder, do you know him? Now, what I'd like us to do now is just in quiet, 
as we finished, just to think about those three ways that Jesus demonstrated his sonship. Which ones are you struggling with today? Maybe next week. What do you foresee what has been the case before? On your own, a few minutes, just think. Was it the trusting the provision that Father would provide for you? Trusting the will, what God wants for you? Or trusting the way, God's way of doing things? Let's just bow our heads now and pray, and I will draw it to a close. Father, we thank you that though we are weak, you are strong. We thank you that we have our big brother, Jesus, who has done everything that we can't do. But Father, please help us to see that you will provide for us. Father, let us see that in the, from the grandstand perspective over time and space that you have, that your will, Father, is supreme and that you will get the victory. And Father, help us to see that Jesus was that way. Let us cling to nothing else. Let us cast away anything which stops us from trusting in the way of Jesus. Father, I pray that you will comfort us this week. Father, I pray that we will know that there is peace to be had at the foot of the cross. I pray that there will be encouragement in victories over sin. Father, you give us the power to withstand sin, and I pray that we will do that. But Father, let us look to you when we stumble so we can get up again pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.